We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 4, and we'll be looking this morning at the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 4. Now, in just a few weeks, spring break will be upon us, and following that will be officially the first day of spring. We have certainly had a mild winter temperature-wise, and so it's not as if we are just dying for warmer temperatures, but we are tired of the wet season and are looking forward to some sunny days and the coming of spring. Of course, with spring comes the fact that we must start working in the yard again. Some of you enjoy doing that. Others of us endure that time of year. Frankly, I am a little tired of trying to grow grass and the expense that comes with it. It looks great in the spring. It gets deep green, it gets lush and thick, so much so that you often have to cut it twice a week during that time of year. But inevitably, we know that the heat and dryness of summer is coming, even as we look at our grass in the spring and sometimes think, this is the best my yard's ever looked. We know that it is going to turn brown once again and fade and die. All that work, all that money turned to brown so quickly. But under pressure from my neighbors, I keep trying, which means I'll have to purchase grass seed again in just a few weeks and sow it. I like to use the old-fashioned method. I get a five-gallon bucket, and I pour the grass seed in it, and I walk around my yard spreading the grass seed with my hand. I know there are machines that do that more efficiently and more effectively, but for whatever reason, I just like the old-fashioned method. But no matter what method you use, some seed is not going to fall where you want it to. Some of it is going to wind up on your driveway. Some of it on your sidewalk if you have one in front of your yard or the road that is in front of your yard. And if you do not blow it off or sweep it off, it will certainly not produce grass, but instead will become food for the birds. Other seed is going to fall on ground that is rocky or hard. All of us have those spots in our yards where no matter how hard we try, and we try every year, grass just won't seem to grow there. Sometimes it springs up in the spring, but it fades away, and that barren spot remains throughout the summer. And then, of course, if you're like me, you have a yard that is in growing measure infected by Bermuda grass. And so when you throw your fescue seed out, the Bermuda is sure to choke it out. Once again, it will spring up, but the Bermuda, when it finally comes back to life, will choke out that fescue and kill it, and the Bermuda will continue to spread. It's a great great grass for golf courses, but we don't like it in our yards around here, even though it is hard to get rid of. But of course, we do all of this because some of the seed is going to fall on good soil, and some of the seed is going to spring up and produce grass so that we can sit back and enjoy the fruit of our labor, a nice yard, at least for a time. So why all this talk about sowing grass seed? Is it just because spring is around the corner? No, it's because I've really just contemporized the parable that we are looking at this morning. It is commonly called the parable of the sower and is found in these first 20 verses of Mark's gospel. Now, I'm going to call it the sower and his seed, and I'm calling it that for reasons that I will explain in a few moments 
And this is a parable that I know without a doubt will apply to every single person listening this morning. I don't always say that in a sermon because it's not always true. I recognize that some passages of Scripture are more applicable to some people in their status of life than it is for others. But in this text, I am 100% confident that it will apply to every single person here today. So Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside him on the sea uh, of the land, beside the sea on the land. Verse 2, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some, as he sowed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, but since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold, and a hundredfold. Now, many of us like a good story. It grabs our attention and keeps us interested. In fact, I am confident that some of you, perhaps many of you, would, would rather that I tell more stories in my sermons than I actually do, because they are, in your mind, easier to follow and therefore easier to understand than is mere straight teaching. And they can be effective ways to communicate, and certainly Jesus uses used them extensively. But before we get into the story itself, I want to examine the nature of a story, or what we call here a parable. It was clearly Jesus' favorite method of teaching. There are some 60 different parables in the Gospels. And that's in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because John, for whatever reason, actually tells no parables at all. We've seen that a parable is a story, that is a made-up story, designed to teach a spiritual truth. 
which certainly sounds easy enough. The word parable means something placed alongside something else for the purpose of clarification. So it's actually a comparison. This is like something else, and in seeing the story, it helps us better understand what it is that it is placed alongside of for the sake of clarification or comparison. And the topic most often addressed in these 60 parables, not all of them, of course, but most often, is the kingdom of God. And we generally conclude that Jesus used this method for the sake of simplicity and for effective communication. Again, that's what we think of a story. So naturally, we take what we think of a story and we say, well, Jesus used the story format because it was easier for people to understand and thus He could communicate His message more effectively. That is until we look at the three verses that are found in the middle of this particular parable, verses 10 through 12. I told you last week about the sandwiching technique of Mark, and I explained the reason he uses that. This is the second example of it. That is, he inserts something in the middle of a story, in this case, verses 10 through 12. And the insert is clearly at a different time because now he is not talking to the crowds by the sea. Now he is with a smaller group of people that includes his 12 apostles, but there are more there as well. And so in this smaller setting, the disciples asked him why he is teaching in parables. And it is his response that floors us. Jesus answers by saying, for you, that is, for His disciples and apostles, for those who are in this smaller setting, He says, for you, it has been given to know the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. So He says there's two purposes of parables. Number one, for your sake, it is to explain the kingdom of God. But it is the second half that bothers us. He says, but for those who are outside, it is so that they will not hear and they will not understand, and so that they will not turn and be forgiven. Here we have this inside-outside motif again, and we've seen this before. You remember we saw it in the incident where Jesus is in the house and there's a crowd of people surrounding Him. His mother and brothers come to speak to Him, but there are so many people in there that he, they, they can't get in to see Him. And we talked about the fact that the, those on the inside are really His family, and those on the outside, though they are physically related to Him, He's making a distinction. And we find this distinction again here. But it's not a distinction that we're comfortable with because we are an all-inclusive society. We want everyone to be included. We are uncomfortable with acknowledging that some people are on the outside, especially if we happen to be part of those who are on the outside. We want to be fair to everyone, and being fair means that everyone is on the inside. Now, a secret or mystery in Bible times was not a riddle or a puzzle that we sort of had to put the pieces together in order to solve. A mystery in the New Testament was something that was previously hidden, but now is being revealed. And the secret or mystery here is the kingdom of God. Jesus has come to reveal or to manifest the kingdom of God, and that is why He began His ministry by saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And these disciples are beginning to understand that. They're certainly not there yet. We're going to have a lot of ups and downs with the apostles as we walk through the gospel of Mark. Sometimes they understand, sometimes they do not. But they're beginning to understand what Jesus is talking about when He's talking about the kingdom of God. But those outside, 
they don't have a clue about it. And to make that point, Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It's not a complete quote in Mark's gospel, but it's a summary of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. A passage that is quoted some six times in the New Testament, always in the context of unbelief and the hardness of someone's heart. In fact, in both Matthew and Luke's version of this event, they tone these words down to make it sound like or state that the reason those outside do not understand what Jesus is saying is because of the hardness of their heart. And that is certainly accurate. The problem is that's not the way Mark words it. Mark places the emphasis upon God. And God says, I'm teaching this way so that some will not understand. And if you think about it, this brings up the whole idea, which I sort of hesitate to bring up, but it brings up the whole idea of the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. That is, how can these two truths both be taught in Scripture and both be true? God is sovereign over everything, which includes salvation. And yet man is responsible, therefore man must respond to the call of God in order to be saved. So how can these things be true? Charles Spurgeon was reportedly asked on one occasion how he could reconcile these two scriptural truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And supposedly Spurgeon's response was, I do not try to reconcile friends. Friends don't need to be reconciled. In other words, he was acknowledging that these both are scriptural truths, and even if we can't wrap our heads around how they come together, it is not our responsibility to reconcile them because God has taught both, and therefore we must teach both and believe both. And so while we may not understand the story itself, or while we do understand, I should say, the story itself, as we'll see in a moment, the, the, the nature of the story is pretty clear-cut. The spiritual truth it seeks to communicate can only be grasped by those on the inside, leaving those on the outside often at a, at a loss for what he's talking about. In my last church, we renovated the sanctuary very much like we did this sanctuary some three and a half years ago. The, old, the other church was many years ago. But when we renovated our sanctuary then, we changed out all the windows. We had stained glass windows, and we replaced them with new stained glass windows. Now, if you were raised in a church like this, you're saying, I don't really remember what stained glass windows are. But if you were raised in a small Southern Baptist church, you are probably familiar with stained glass windows. They actually, this, this part you may not know, but in, in many churches, they paint a picture of the gospel story. So that if you go into one of those sanctuaries, and the next time you're in there, I encourage you to do this. You look around the sanctuary, starting on one corner and working your way around the sanctuary, and the entire gospel story is told in those various windows. So it starts in one place, sometimes the baptism of Jesus, and it works its way around and tells the gospel story through those windows. Now, a stained glass window from the outside doesn't look like much. In fact, it looks rather dark. So if you just see it from outside of the church, you think those, those windows are rather discouraging and dark. But if you get on the inside, you see that they are filled with vibrant colors, and as I've just said, they tell a story. So it is with the parables of Jesus. From those on the outside, these parables are often confusing, and you wonder, what's this about? But on the inside, those who are followers of Christ, we see these spiritual truths, and we understand more about the kingdom of God. 
And so that's why Jesus says, even though it's hard for us to understand, there is a sense in which he tells parables in order to reveal the kingdom of God, and there is a sense in which he tells parables in order to conceal the kingdom of God. And both are true. Now let me just summarize what parables are all about, because we're going to talk about many different parables And as Jesus says here, if we don't understand even this parable, we will not be be able to understand the others. And if we don't understand what parables are designed to do, then we are going to be confused repeatedly. So number one, parables provide insight into the nature, coming, growth, and consummation of the kingdom of God. Again, I said that the kingdom of God is the primary subject of the parables, not exclusive, but primary. And so these parables give us insight into the nature coming and ultimately consummation of the kingdom of God. They are designed to be provocative and surprising. That is, there is often a surprise element of the parable, even as we'll see in the one we are looking at this morning. They are used to stimulate thinking and cause us to contemplate what we've heard. They do this by using everyday objects and circumstances to illustrate spiritual truth, usually with a new twist. And they reveal truth to the receptive ear while hiding it from hardened hearts. And finally, they are not always one point. There was a a belief many years ago that they were always about one point. Uh, That's sort of been changed now, and most believe that sometimes parables can teach multiple points. But they are not allegories where we press every detail of the story because they are stories designed to teach spiritual truth. Now, I don't know why we ever thought these stories were simple. Our life group discussions, we are studying a parable on Sunday nights in our life groups. We have found out by now, I trust in your life group, that there is more to that parable than first meets the eye. In fact, we can't even agree on the title of the parable. That's how difficult some of these parables are. For a long time, we've called it the parable of the prodigal son, but now we've learned that perhaps it ought to be called the parable of the gracious father or the parable of two lost sons, three different titles for the same parable. And we're going to see the exact same thing today. This parable has long been known by the title, the parable of the sower. But there are others who believe it really ought to be titled the parable of the soils. And so I'm going to take the politically correct option this morning, and I am calling it the sower, and his soils, because we see both aspects here. So let's get to the story. This story, once again, takes place not by the Sea of Galilee, where we've been on previous occasions, but now, literally, it takes place on the Sea of Galilee, because the crowds are so large that Jesus gets into a boat in order to teach the throngs of the people on the shoreline. And those of you who are lake folks know that your voice does carry across water. So he is able to communicate to these loud crowds or large crowds without amplification like we have today. The story itself is bracketed with two calls to pay attention. Verse 3, we find the exclamation, listen. And at the end of verse 9, which is the end of the parable, we we find these words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is another indication that the parable is more difficult than you might first think because there is this call to to pay attention. And I want to issue the same call. Listen. Pay attention. 
Set aside the distractions for the next few moments because this is not a nursery rhyme nor the latest novel from John Grisham. This is not a story that we read or tell in order to entertain or amuse us. This is the Messiah who has come to tell us something about the kingdom of God that he has inaugurated. Therefore, listen, pay attention. The story itself is easy enough to understand. It begins with a sower who is sowing his seed, a farmer who is planting his field. He sows unsparingly. That is, he is broadcasting the seed far and wide to every inch, every corner of his field. No doubt he knows the farming and spiritual principle that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Or we might say, you reap what you sow. One might even argue that he is being somewhat wasteful with his method of sowing. After all, three-quarters of the soils on which this seed is thrown do not produce a lasting crop. So we might say this man needs to be a little more careful with how he is throwing seed. But the point of this story is not wasted seed, even if that is three-quarters of the soil. One of the points of this story is actually the abundance of the harvest, Something we'll see in just a few moments. Now, it is clear that God is the sower, or to be more specific, it is Christ Himself. He has come proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, and that proclamation goes to all unsparingly. There is no division. All need to hear, and that is what they are doing. Large crowds, we've seen, are consistently following Jesus. Even when He wants to get away from them, they consistently follow Him because large crowds want and need to hear what he has to say. Now, we could also conclude, of course, that now we are to be the sowers. We are to be the ones broadcasting the seed, again, in a lavish and extravagant manner. And if we are not sowing the seed of the gospel, then it certainly makes no sense for us to expect a harvest of spiritual souls. And while all of that is true and a fair point, it is not the main emphasis here. The emphasis here is on Jesus' proclamation and, as we'll see, the people's response to it. So we have a sower who is sowing, and what is he sowing? He, of course, is sowing seed. And we do not have to guess at what the seed is. Verse 14 tells us very plainly that the seed is the Word. Luke says it is the Word of God. Matthew says it is the Word of His kingdom. So in essence, he is sowing the message of the gospel. Jesus has come proclaiming the kingdom of God has arrived. And we saw very early in this gospel that, or in in the gospel of Mark, we saw that the gospel can be defined with two simple words, repent and believe. Repent of your sins, that is, confess your sins, acknowledging them to be sins, and turn away from them, and then believe in who Christ is and what He has done on our behalf. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. Well, so far, so good. It's easy enough to understand. There is a sower. He is God or Christ. He is sowing seed, and that is the proclamation of the Word or the gospel. And now we move to what really takes up the bulk of the parable And that is the reception of those who hear the Word. And there are four receptions. And that is why I said that I am confident this is going to be applicable for every single person here this morning, because you are hearing the Word. Now, maybe you've never heard it before, but you're hearing it now. Most of us have heard it many times. 
But because you are here, you are hearing the word, and therefore you are one of these soils. So this is applicable to all of us. So we have the sower, we have the seed, and then we have the soil upon which that seed falls. Four different types of soil. Number one, we find the hard and indifferent. This is the seed that is sown on the path. Or in my contemporary version, this is the seed that winds up on your driveway, your sidewalk, or the road in front of your house. Clearly, this seed is not going to take root because there is no soil at all. Instead, it is likely to be devoured by birds as their next meal. And in the explanation of the parable that comes in the second half, Jesus tells us exactly what that is. He says in verse 15 that this is the devil. Satan himself comes and immediately takes away the word. And so in this case, the word never penetrates the mind or the heart. And this is the classic example of the hard-hearted person who wants nothing to do with God nor the kingdom of God. Well, you say, why did they hear the word? Well, maybe they heard the word because they respected the person that was proclaiming the word. Maybe they like you, and as you tried to share the gospel with them, they did not want to offend you, so they listened, but they really cared nothing about it. Or maybe they came to church because it was a holiday, and that's what folks do on holidays. Or maybe they come on Mother's Day just to please Mama, but they actually have no inkling of any idea that they want anything to do with the kingdom of God. They hear, but their hearts and minds are hard and indifferent, and therefore the Word never takes root in their minds or lives. What this soil, or lack thereof, also tells us is that when the Word of God is sown Our enemy is also at work. He wants nothing more than to prevent you from understanding the truth so that you will remain in darkness rather than coming into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Soil number one is the hard and indifferent. And while there may be some who fall into that category, my guess is that's not the vast majority who are here today. The second type of soil represents the shallow and superficial This is the seed that has fallen on rocky soil that springs up quickly, but because its root system was shallow, it could not handle the heat of summer, and so when the sun rises, it quickly withers away. This reaction is so much different than the first because in this case, there are signs of life. In the first case, there is no sign of life. They have no desire for the things of God. But here, there is an initial response that demonstrates some signs of life only to later show that it wasn't really true faith. In fact, he acknowledges in verse 16 that there might be initially some joy, maybe some tears of joy. And we, I've heard people say this. I know they're saved because I was there when they cried tears of joy having confessed faith in Christ. Or to put it more in our terminology today, I was there when they walked an aisle, and before the whole church, they made a profession, and then a few weeks later, we baptized them. How do we know they're saved? Because they came forward and said a few words, and they were baptized outwardly and initially. It looks very much like faith, but it turns out to be nothing like true faith at all. Verse 17 tells us that they endure for a while, but when trouble arises, they turn away. Perhaps they thought, or maybe worse, they were told that if they make a commitment by faith in Christ, that their life will be easy and comfortable. 
And when they discover that that is not what Jesus says and therefore not what Jesus promises, they turn away from Christ altogether. Now, now don't misunderstand me. They probably would not make this claim. They would not deny their profession of faith in Christ. When you come to their house or to their uh, place of business and try to share the gospel with them or invite them back to church, they will not say, no, I deny that. I know I made a profession, but forget about that. They probably won't say those words, but that's what they're doing. Because when the troubles of life have come, they've walked away from that initial faith in Christ. Trouble is often the test of authentic faith. And in this case, it is specifically trouble because of the Word of God. Again, they might have thought that when they make a commitment to Christ, their life is going to be easy, but it turns out sometimes it's the exact opposite of that. Because life isn't easy, the troubles lead them away. And since they turn away, their faith is in vain. It is not a saving kind of faith. Again, let me be very clear. I am not talking about someone here who has lost their salvation. I am not talking about a saved person who gave evidence of that salvation, and now because they no longer do, they have lost their salvation. This is someone who gave some initial outward evidence of genuine faith, but the fact that they are no longer doing anything or bearing any kind of fruit is proof positive that their faith initially was not genuine at all. And that statement is likewise true when we come to the third type of soil. One where the thorns choke out the reception of the Word. This is the preoccupied or distracted response. The cares of the world are the thorns. Worry becomes more important and more prominent than worship, and therefore there is no fruit. Or maybe it's wealth. Wealth is often something that distracts us from greater priorities, cash becoming more important to us than Christ. And it is often the case in Scripture and in history that where the wealth of a people rises, their spiritual commitment uh, falls. And that's what we are talking about here. And the Bible teaches that a partial commitment is really no commitment at all. You know, I certainly learned some spiritual lessons in seminary, but I'll be honest with you, I learned some lessons elsewhere also. For example, I learned some spiritual lessons when my kids were younger from VeggieTales. You see, I always talk about country music. So this morning I'm switching genres and I'm going to VeggieTales. There is a VeggieTale whose main character is a woman by the name of Madame Blueberry. Madame Blueberry is, of course, a blueberry. And she lives in a tree. But she is not the least bit satisfied with her life. Because she looks around at everybody else and knows that everybody else has more than what she has. And therefore, even the good things she has, she's no longer satisfied with because people have more. One day, to her luck, a new store opens up right across the street from her tree. A store called the Stuff Mart. And at the Stuff Mart, you can buy whatever you want. And the salesmen at the Stuff Mart are more than happy to sell you anything your heart desires. And they do so while singing this jingle. Happiness is found at the Stuff Mart. All you need is lots more stuff. And that's the way many people live their lives. Happiness, where do I find it? Well, I find it at the mall by buying something else. 
And when I get this or when I get that, I will be happy because all I need is lots more stuff. And in this parable, we are told that that is a deceptive way to live life because it never fulfills what it promises. It does not satisfy, and in fact, it actually distracts us from that which does satisfy. It's not just worry and wealth. It can also be wishes. That is, those things that we desire. We have so many desires, and again, often the money to fund those desires. And those desires can become a distraction to us. And though they may not be bad or evil in and of themselves, they serve to distract us from that which is ultimately important. And again, I want to emphasize this too. We're on the third soil. This too is not losing salvation. This is your priorities testifying to a lack of genuine faith. Now, I think it's safe to say that if I were to ask, Which of these soils is most prominent in our part of the country? You understand that even in our country, you go around to different parts and there are going to be different kinds of soil. Well, the same is true spiritually. That is, I think you can go to parts of our country and the first soil is going to be the most prominent. That is, you go to some areas of our nation and there you're going to find people who are hard uh, to the gospel. They don't want to hear anything about it. And that's why there are very few evangelical churches in those areas. But we know that does not describe our part of the country. So I think if you were to ask me which of these three soils is most prominent in our part of the country, I would have to say it's number three. I think number two might come a close second. But I would have to say number three is the most prominent. And that is people are not actively opposed to the gospel, generally speaking, because they've made some kind of commitment or profession to the gospel in the past. They have, they have outwardly responded, and yet the worries of this life, the wealth that they possess, or the wishes, that is, the desires that they are looking forward to and trying to achieve in this life, clearly have a greater priority in their life than do the things of Christ. And once again, this is not a matter of losing salvation. Number two and number three are not matters of losing salvation. It is a matter of the fact that because other things take priority, it is a clear proof that Christ never was the priority and therefore there never was genuine salvation. I remember years ago, a youth minister I had was teaching this parable to the youth and I don't know why I was in the service at that particular time. I certainly usually wasn't, but I was on this night. He was teaching this parable and and he made the point that the first soil is clearly the lost person. And then in his interpretation of it, the other three all represented saved people who were in varying degrees or stages of their salvation. And he pulled in the whole carnal Christian uh, mentality that has been misused and misapplied for a long time now and said, you know, these three, these last three soils are all believers. I had to pull them aside afterwards and say, listen, I need to explain this parable to you because your interpretation is wrong. These Second and third soils are not believers, no matter that they made some initial expression, no matter that there was some outward evidence of life. When the troubles of life came, they withered away. When the worries or wealth or the wishes of life got in the way, their commitment to Christ was no longer important. And the fact that they were not bearing fruit is proof positive that they were not genuinely saved. Because hear me correctly, every genuine Christian bears fruit. That's the point of this parable. 
The point of this parable is that the last soil is the only soil that is a genuine follower of Christ, and the difference between the last soil and all of the others is the bearing of fruit. All heard. There is no distinction in the hearing. Everybody heard, but there's only one soil that bore fruit because there's only one soil that represents the good and the fruitful response to receiving the Word. That's the seed that began to sprout, and it developed deep roots, those deep roots able to stand the troubles of life and able to withstand the thorns that threaten to choke them out because this is the seed that springs forth and produces a harvest. In fact, we could say in verse 20 that Mark is really giving us here a definition of faith. And I know faith is one of those words that we have a hard time defining, especially when I keep talking about the fact that there is genuine faith and there is spurious or false faith. So how can we know what real faith is if I keep talking about not all faith is equivalent? Well, look at verse 20. Mark has, in essence, given us a definition of faith. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who, here's the definition, they hear the Word, they accept the Word, and it bears fruit. Now, granted... It bears varying fruit. That is, all Christians do not bear the same amount of fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But let me say it again. Every Christian bears fruit. Hearing is not enough. All four soils heard. But only those who ultimately bear fruit prove to be genuine. Now again, the bearing of fruit does not save us. But salvation bears fruit. And that fruit is born because the Spirit produces it within us. Now, you remember I said that one of the keys to a parable is there, there is often a twist, often a surprising element. So what's the surprising element in this story? It's the amount of the harvest. I mean, he concludes, remember we said one could argue that this, this sower is being wasteful because so much of his seed falls on, on soil or no soil at all that's not going to produce any fruit. But that's not the twist. The twist is the harvest, 30, 60, and 100-fold. In those days, a good harvest was seven or eight-fold. Well, that was an average harvest. A good harvest was tenfold. That would be acceptable. In fact, that would be praiseworthy. But 100-fold, that's astounding. If we go back to Genesis, we do find that Isaac was sowing a field, and the Bible tells us that Isaac reaped a hundredfold what he sowed. But the very next statement after the Bible tells us that Isaac reaped a hundredfold, the very next statement is, the Lord blessed him. And that's why the magnitude of this harvest is there to tell us that God is at work here. This is no normal harvest. This is, a, this is God at work in the hearts of those who are good soil, that is, those who are genuine believers, and through His Spirit producing a harvest well beyond anything that we could ever think of. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the soil I thought that was the most prevalent in this part of our country was the third soil. But the most important question is not a statistical question as which one is the majority. The most important question is this, which soil are you? Again, you've heard the Word. Whether this is your first time or whether you've heard it all of your life, you've heard the Word. Therefore, you now fall in one of these four categories, which is why this sermon is applicable for every one of us. The question is, which soil are you? Remember, only one of the four is an appropriate and saving response to the hearing of God's Word. 
And yet you need to know that just because you're one soil this morning doesn't mean that's where you're going to stay all of your life. You've heard the gospel again. Therefore, if you recognize yourself in second or third soil, maybe even the first soil, today can be the day that you change locations and you hear the word, accept it, and begin bearing fruit to the glory of God and through the power of His Spirit. So having heard it, will you accept it as the very word of God? The message that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and that He has come for the purpose of saving sinners just like us? That's why He's in trouble with the Pharisees, because He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then you continue to hear it, and you continue to accept it, and the Spirit continues to bear fruit through you as you abide in Him. In fact, I don't mean, I don't mean to get overly technical as I finish here, but in this last soil, there's a different tense in the original. They're all present participles. Hear, accept, and bear are all present participles, which I know doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but here's what it means. It means it is not a one-time action in the past. Instead, it is a present, ongoing, and continual action. The genuine believer keeps on hearing. The genuine believer keeps on accepting. And the genuine believer keeps on bearing fruit to the glory of God. That is what genuine faith is and the mark of a true disciple. And so perhaps in a few weeks, when you, like me, spend $100 to buy a big bag of grass seed, and you go out to sow your yard with grass seed. Maybe you won't be daydreaming. Maybe you won't even be listening to music on your headphones as you do it. Maybe instead, you'll be thinking about two things. Number one, you'll be thinking about this. You know what? Even as I'm sowing this grass seed, I have a responsibility to sow the Word of God. I need to be the sower that Jesus was and lavishly and extravagantly tell the word to people, understanding that not everyone's going to respond positively, but also understanding the promise of this parable that some are. Some of that seed is going to fall on good soil, and some of it is going to grow. And then secondly, as you're sowing that seed, perhaps you can be thinking about your own heart. What kind of soil am I? Am I bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Even as I want this seed to grow and bear fruit, am I doing that through the power of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray.